We're now in the third episode of our second series of In Their Own Words. So far, we've heard stories from all around the world, Azerbaijan, China, Bahrain, Egypt, to name but a few. When we think of corruption and cover-ups, we usually associate them with a faraway country with a history of human rights abuses, but sometimes they happen much closer to home. In the late 1980s, local police in the north of England were involved in the cover-up of nearly a hundred deaths. They smeared the reputations of innocent people, they lied to journalists, and they misled government at the highest level. This led to a battle for justice that's been raging for nearly three decades and continues to this day. This is our friend Steve Kelly, who's going to tell you about his brother Mike and how one football match changed their family forever. Mike was my older brother by three years. We lost our father very young, so Mike was, was my man I'd go running to when anything happened to me. We were very, very close. We shared a bedroom, and he was always there as uh, my confidant. So Mike, to me, was... Uh, he was my dad, really, growing up. He, he helped me so much, looked after me, and, um, you know, protected me. It's difficult to lose that kind of thing in your life in any circumstance, but the circumstance in which we have has made it more and more difficult because, as I say, Mike, my brother, has become some sort of public property, which would have mortified Mike because he was, he was a very shy man, very quiet. He's an avid reader. I mean, Mike was reading War and Peace and I was still on the Beano. But his, his, his main passion was football, Liverpool Football Club something we didn't share as um, Everton Football Club. But that's what it is in this city. We were, we were divided by colours, but we were still brothers. The odd 90 minutes a season, we weren't together. The rest of the time we were. And I miss, you know, that kind of camaraderie with them. During the mid-80s in Liverpool, the, the, the work situation was, you know, horrendous. You, you, you couldn't get work anywhere. Mike found a job with the National Freight in Bristol and he liked the city, so he, he decided to stay. But obviously, Liverpool was his home and Liverpool was his team, so he needed to be home as often as he could to watch the Reds. He used to travel with the Stratford upon Avon Supporters Club. If they ever came sort of anywhere past Birmingham, Mike used to say to someone in the match, You're going back to Liverpool, lad, if they give you a couple of quid, will you drop us off? He'd stay the weekend with my mum and most notably also with a bag of dirty washing, you know. On that weekend, uh, the 15th, Everton were also playing at Villa Park against Norwich City in the other semi-final. And Mike thought I'd be going to the game. I was running the London Marathon the following weekend. I was working as a taxi driver at the time, so I couldn't afford to take both weekends off and I'd booked London. So I had to dip out and miss out the Everton match. So we, we just had a a chat ourselves. He was asking me, was it going to the game? I said, no. He told me he'd got his own ticket for the Leppings Lane. He looked forward to it and he said, it's a pity you won't be getting to Wembley as well. We could have gone together. You know, and uh, we had a bit of a laugh and a joke about it. Mike made his own way there that day and uh, sadly never came home. I myself was, was back in Liverpool and had been out with my wife. We were doing our shopping um, 
I can remember being a little bit annoyed because it was getting near kick-off time. I wanted to get home and see the results. And at the time, and uh, we were walking towards our home, there was a, a row of shops. In them days, they used to have an amount of televisions in the window. And I noticed this group of people gathered outside. So I thought, oh, there must have been a goal or something. And I actually put the shopping down, ran over the road and checked, and I could see uh, Des Lynham talking about an incident that had occurred at Hillsborough. And of course, I was rather concerned then, so I decided to run home, see what was going on. I went home, put the TV on, and you seen part of the disaster unfolding. It said there'd been a number of fatalities and so many injured. And of course, my thoughts went to Mike, but I had that sort of safe feeling with I believed that Mike was such an experienced football fan. He'd have made his way out of the ground, not knowing that that was... That was impossible to get out of them pens. So I, I just like everybody else, watched the disaster unfolding. The fatalities went up throughout the day. There was a number you could ring to, to check up uh, your family members were. And I don't think I actually rang the, the number because I just had faith in Mike's ability to look after himself. I actually went to work that evening as a, as a taxi driver in Liverpool. And, of course, the whole city was talking about it. We were picking people up from the match and they were telling us what had gone on and how it had been so badly organised and people had lost their friends and they were all, everyone was worried about everybody. And, you know, the city was just very, very flat. Everton had won the correspondent fixture against Norwich City to reach Wembley. There was no celebrations from any Evertonians. It was just we were all concerned about the dead and the injured at the time. You could feel at that point even the city was coming together somehow. Because even as taxi drivers, we were taking people home from the stations and stuff. And it may sound strange, but we were giving basic counselling. Even if it was just, you know, all right, lad, you're home safe yourself and your mum will be made up. It was just something as simple as that. But we were doing it and it was a city coming together. It was the start of something very, very big that we never ever thought would affect our lives. I went home and I noticed a note from my wife Christina who was in bed. She just said, Steve, ring your mum. And I thought, well, it's late now. I'm not going to ring now. I'll ring in the morning. I went to bed, probably 3.30, 4 o'clock. I can remember I woke up with a jolt, sat bolt upright in bed, sort of violently. I woke my wife, Christine, and she said, you're OK? And I said, well, no. I said, I don't feel right. And she said, did you see the, the note? I said, yeah, I'll go and my mum now. I came downstairs and I rang my mum. I just said, um, you know, what's up? She said, there'd been no word from Mike. So I said, um, I said, well, you know what he's like, mum. I said, he's probably gone back to Bristol on the coach. Probably seen a lot of stuff that wasn't very nice there yesterday. Got himself upset and he's gone home, straight home. I said, you know what he's like, mum? He'll ring later on when he's sorted himself out. Then I started to ring the helplines to see if there was any news, if he'd been injured, say, or whatever. When I eventually got through, I spoke to the police. There was no better description given of anyone than there was of our Michael. I mean, I knew every inch of Mike. I could tell you anything about him. But the police assured me that all the dead had been identified. So with that lightheartedness, I then went and told my mother. 
I said, Mum, don't worry, it's all they've had to be identified. Mike's not amongst them. He's probably gone back to Bristol. I then rang round all the hospitals. I even put a, an appeal out on Bristol Radio, but there was still no word coming back. But I was confident then, because the police had said all the dead had been identified. That kept ringing in my head all the time. Due to my mum's insistence, I kept ringing, and I think about the fourth or fifth occasion, I decided I'll have to go to Sheffield. There was no other cause of action. Didn't know what to do. So just drove straight to the Leppings Lane gates. And it was a lovely, warm, sunny day again, like it was the previous day. And I remember a policeman standing on the gate, and he had a large black overcoat on. And I remember looking at him thinking, he must be boiling in that, with his policeman's helmet on. And I went up to him, and people had been adorned in the gates with flags and scars and flowers and stuff. As I pulled up in my car, he actually told me to F off. He said, haven't you got no respect? Don't park there. I said, I'm looking for my brother. He said, I don't give a F. He said, get your car out the way. I said, no. I said, I'm looking for my brother. I said, I can't get no sense out of you lot. A sergeant or somebody come across, calm you down. When I explained, he said, OK, I'll take you to the boys' club and we'll take a statement off you. I followed them to the boys' club where we were met by three social workers and another policeman who again was taking the description of Mike. I said, well, why do you keep asking for this description? All the dead, they would be identified. So we carried on doing the process anyway, as you've got to. The policeman was a bit further back. And just one particular occasion, I caused him to corner of my eye, call it across, and his whole body language changed. And I'm not an expert on body language, but I just knew this man had been given some information. And I couldn't stop looking at him. I was actually ignoring the other two ladies. He came across with the social worker and he said, Mr Kelly, would you be prepared to look at some bodies? So I said, what for? I said, all, all the dead have been identified. He said, no, there's two, a man and a woman. So I said, well, what the hell do I want to look at a woman for? I'm here for my brother. He said, well, will you look at the man? I said, well, if it clears up this mess, if I will, yeah. The bad feelings were coming on me then. and I felt my body collapsing. And they said, we need to take you over to a place called the Medical Legal Centre, which was the makeshift morgue. And uh, I... Um, couldn't get my chair. <laughs> I just couldn't get out of that chair. Um, this feeling was becoming overwhelming and I just knew something bad was about to happen. And we went over there and the police, uniform police, then put us in touch with the, the detectives. They were horrible. There was no compassion. No one to put an arm around you. I was frightened. Then they started talking about dead bodies and stuff. And after about ten minutes of answering lots of questions and giving Mike's description again, 
this man sitting right opposite me pulled out a Polaroid photograph square threw it across the table as if he was dealing me a card and I had to sort of turn it and uh, there was Mike in a body bag I said that's him and I picked it up and I went to put it in my pockets and I felt a hand grab me took the picture he said you can't have that that's the property of the South Yorkshire police so I said well what happens now he said well we'll take you down to the mall to identify this man and he led me down through this these corridors and it was so claustrophobic it was warm everything was closing on me Made me chest, my head, everything wanted to explode. I was, I was terrified. And then they, they saw me into a little room. Um, which again, it was, it, it was frightening. It, it was, there was nothing in there except a glass screen in front of it with velvet curtains on the back. And it just stood me. Ushered me into the front. It was me and about eight barely policemen in this room. And then, just nowhere to warn, just open the curtains. And there was Mike. Just laying there on his own. I, I said to him, I want to go in. He said, Why? <laughs> to give him a kiss. To, to let him know I'm here. I wanted to let him know I'm here. He's been on his own all night. I just want to give him a kiss. And he wouldn't let me. And I said, why? He said, he's the property of the coroner. I said, no, no, no chance, mate. I said, he's my mother's son. I want to go in and give him a kiss. He wouldn't let me. And then the next thing he just said, we've got to go and sign some papers now. And we walked out of this room into this corridor again. And all of a sudden this explosion went off in my head. I thought, oh God, I've got to phone my mother now. The thoughts of phoned me, ma'am. I was, was horrendous. And I went down and I told him I, I wouldn't say nothing. I needed to speak to me, ma'am. Probably about nine o'clock at night by now. And uh, I phoned and my cousin Margaret answered. She said, Stephen, where's Michael? I said, put me mother on. She said, where's Michael? I said, put me mother on. And... My mum come on the phone and said, where's Michael? And she says, Mum, I'm sorry, he's dead. I mean, there's just a silence then. And then my sister came on. I told my sister. And I just heard all this screaming and wailing down the phone. 
and that the phone went down and and I didn't even have the confidence to ring back because he did it with all our eyes and I had to go then and I was at my most vulnerable then I'd never been that vulnerable in my life the brother who always looked after me was yards down the road. Couldn't help me. And they sat me down and had me filling forms in. And I didn't realise, I didn't think till years later, I was checking their boxes. Did Mike like a drink? Did Mike go to the pub before the match? And I didn't realise I was helping their case then. And I was so, so vulnerable. And I think they used that to their advantage. 96 men, women and children were killed in a crush at Hillsborough Football Ground on the 15th of April 1989. A large crowd had built up outside the stadium. A decision was made to open a gate that meant thousands of fans flooded into an already busy part of the ground. The disaster was blamed on the Liverpool fans' behaviour. They were painted as drunken hooligans. The following morning, my priority was going to see my mum and my sister to tell them what had occurred up in Sheffield. I went down to my mum's and the house was packed with people. I do remember chasing everybody out because I thought, no, this is for us. This is me, my mum and my sister. I told them what had gone on and uh, my mum was quite standoffish to me because I had sort of reassured her throughout the day before that Mike was alive. My sister was, what to say, extremely distraught as an understatement. I remember seeing the Notorious Sun headline and I thought, my mother can't see that. So we, we kept all the press away from her. I took the fuse out of the television and the radio and we'd only put them on at certain times when we knew there was no news reports on. We had to obviously make funeral arrangements. You couldn't get funeral cars. We had to bring funeral cars in from Wales. There was that many funerals going on each day. You know, we couldn't get cars and all that. We were getting messages from the club saying, who would you like to attend, you know, and people were coming up to you and saying, oh, you know, being kind, but saying, oh, Steve, you know, you're my kid like Kenny Daglish or Ian Rush or, you know, and I wasn't bothered and I was worried about me, ma'am. We're Irish Catholics. You know, we do things a certain way, we have done all our lives, and uh, I just wanted a nice service for, for, for my brother, so with my mum I'd have something to, to cling on to, and uh, that became a strain, because everyone who came down to the house, you know, friends of mine, friends of Mike's, my mum was obviously not thinking right, be knocking on the door, one of the lads would come in and she'd say, you okay? Would you like to carry Michael in the funeral? But the trouble was, my mum asked 33 people. 
So I had to go down then and disappoint you know, all these other people because you know, there's only six people can actually carry. And I actually was one of them six. But I felt so disturbed by that. When we were coming out of the church, I actually pulled one of his friends up and said, yeah, are you, you jumping? This particular lad, it made his day, I know that, because he told me. He, he said I was so honoured. It, it was a nice occasion for me, mum, to see how many people thought, what they thought of him and that. You know, but it, it was strange times and strange things were happening. And then once, you know, we'd sort of got Mike's funeral over, we were now hearing stories about how they were hooligans and, you know, stealing from dead bodies and pissing on the dead and all that kind of stuff, you know. That wasn't like Mike. And, you know, <laughs> I knew that, so I, I'd become quite paranoid. In effect, the immediate aftermath was one of fear because you trusted no one. The only people I trusted was my mum, my sister and my wife. Nobody else. I wouldn't even speak to my friends properly about it. It was about then beginning to deal with the police a bit more. And we didn't realise at the time we were actually probably vilifying our own families. We were giving them what they wanted. You know, did your Mike like it? Yeah, of course he did. I'm not going to say he didn't. The whole case from the police had been built on the allegations that 25,000 Liverpool fans went over there that day. 25,000 Liverpool fans were pissed and troublemakers. You look at some of the, the victims, they were learning to be doctors and you know, they were learning to be good people in society. But these coppers wanted to twist that. When I came away and started to reflect on that initial meeting with them, I realised what I'd done. I'd helped them, and that made me feel terrible. The West Midlands police were trying to identify which item of clothing was which. One particular evening they came round, they had an evidence bag with a jacket in it. And this policeman said, yeah, we've brought a coat round with you to view and a few more trainers, you know. He threw this coat on the table, and as he did, it, it unfolded. And the, the poor person whose coat was had been sick down the coat. My wife and I looked at it and I just said to them, get that off the table. I said, it's not Mike's coat. I said, haven't you people got no sense of reason in anything? My wife said, as soon as the minute he'd gone, she said, get that table and chairs out the house. She said, how do you expect us to eat off that now? And that's exactly what happened. They were just bullish in the approach to you. Never, there was never any sensitivity. They were going to do the investigation whatever way they felt, no matter what. They were covering their tracks. And it was quite a while before, you know, the penny dropped. They, they, they weren't here to help us. They were helping themselves. They were stealing from us. They were stealing information, using it against us and using it against our families who we'd lost. They were like hyenas, and uh, shame on them. We were just people who went to work, come home, and if you're lucky, had two weeks away in Benidorm in July, you know. 
there was nothing special about any of us. But all of a sudden we're in this world of things we don't know. I just remember um, that first meeting when the Hillsborough Support Group was formed in 89, yeah. I remember talking to somebody and he said to me, would you go on the committee? And I said, oh no. But my sister pushed me forward. Next thing it all started filling up with family members. I just remember sitting there, I think I, I probably bet myself. <laughs> you know, I thought, please God, don't nobody ask me a question. As the meeting started, someone put their hand up and said, could you all identify yourselves? And how I got my name and I was, I don't know, but I did. I just know Steve Kelly, what's my brother? I sat down again. And at the end, I went up to a guy named, I said, listen, mate, I said, I, I can't do this. And he went, what, what, what's up? I said, I'm not used to all this kind of thing, you know. I can't be dealing with the council. <laughs> not thinking we were going to take a government on. We were trying to overturn what turned out to be possibly the biggest miscarriage of justice in British history. That was my naivety. That would have probably been the build-up to the first inquest, the Taylor inquiry. A lot of it went over my head until the actual verdict of accidental death. It was just one of a shock because by then anyway, you know, we were hearing all the stories that were coming back from the, the fans who'd gone over there that day. So to put them stories with the, with the verdict didn't match up. I just thought it was the natural process of the law at the time that, you know, he wasn't going to get anywhere else after that. It reverberated very, very badly throughout our family. My mum was ill at the time. She had breast cancer. My sister Joan was not in a good place. And um, I tried to take on everything. And uh, after about three years or so, I realised I couldn't. And I had a, should we say, a fall. And my sister then became more of a campaigner herself and uh, took on the mantle of looking after the case. And I started to look after my mum. But I think the relationship me and my mum had 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 long gone. I was that one who told her that her son as well. I was the one who kept saying to her, Mum, Mike's safe, stop moaning. I can actually remember saying to her mother, will you stop moaning? And my mother never, ever forgive me for that. And I, I started to sort of blame Hillsborough then as well for putting my life where it was. And uh, I began to hate it. Just wished it would go away. Well, Joan, I'd say, was my elder sister by six years. But she was never, ever a confident person, Joan. And sadly, in 1994, we lost our mum. Joan was uh, in a terrible state for a while. But then all of a sudden, gained this strength from somewhere and became a, an ardent campaigner. If I wouldn't back her on something to do with the campaign, she was quite aggressive, at times even vicious. Joan had started to become unwell. She was constantly ill and uh, complaining of pains in her backs, that kind of thing. And I'd ask her to go and get herself seen soon, she wouldn't. And of course she was suffering from me, the loss of my mum. And uh, my mum's buried in a place called UT Cemetery in Liverpool. I could drive any day that we knock down and see Joe, and she wouldn't be in. I'd go, she'd be at the cemetery. 
And I worried about this because I was thinking it was a, her mental health was being affected and she was struggling and she wouldn't let me help her. I'd take her home, go back an hour later, she'd be back at the cemetery. It was hard to watch. So I tried to get Joan to draw her away from Hillsborough and concentrate on our relationship. We were the last two family members left. But Joan quite resented that. And there was an occasion when there was a meeting in London and uh, I begged Joan not to go, but she went. And I found out a bit later on. I came back and uh, we had a bit of a dispute, to say the least, to which Joan threw me out the house, told me never to come to the house again because I'd let Michael down and I'd let her down and let my mother down. And I said, Joan, you can't say that. I said, no, you've let my brother down. I said, but Joan, he was my brother as well. I said, you've got a brother standing right in front of you. Concentrate on that. She wouldn't, so she threw me out. And I never spoke to Joan, or Joan wouldn't speak to me, sorry, for nearly five years. We didn't speak. Joan would go to meetings. I'd, I'd turn up at the occasional one because I was, I was probably more frightened of bumping into Joan than I was for what I was going to find out more about Hillsborough now. And it was a, a conflict you couldn't deal with. So I tended to step back a bit more. And I, I decided by that time to try and change my lifestyle. I thought, we've received lots of help here. Try and give a bit, bit back. So packed in me taxi driving. Lo and behold, my mother would have been proud. I actually went to university and became a social worker. And it was during that period of me training, I got a call from the women's hospital in Liverpool to say Joan had been taken into hospital. I, mean, I left the lecture, went to the women's and Joan was in bed. And I sort of tried to act a bit daft, you know, come from round the corner to say, you know, boo. And she just said, oh, come in and sit down. And we hugged and we spoke. I said, what's, what's wrong? She, been, she said, oh, these pain, I've been having these pains in my back in this business. At the nurse's station, one of the nurses called me in. She said, well, we'd like to talk to you about your sister. She's got cancer. Your sister's going to die here. I said, did she, she know? She said, she doesn't. And I asked him not to tell her. Two days later, I went in. And there was a crowd of her friends. And, and for some strange reason, it must have been God. The room cleared. And it was just me and Joan in the room. We started talking about Hillsborough. I, I said, I said, Joan, I'm sorry if you think you ever let you down. Or let Mike down. I said I didn't mean to. I said it was just my way, I couldn't handle it. I said, it just got on top of me. The identification, the way you were dealt with. I said I just couldn't handle it no more. And she forgave me. And then I put my arms around her and she passed away. Like just like that. She was just gone. I blame the hills for that. If I'd have been there, I would have made her go and get seen too early. And she wouldn't go and get seen too because she was so adamant on sorting 
it out for Mike and for me mum. She neglected herself. My husband killed our young. Thank you very much, sis. When, when Joan passed, one of the last things I did say to Joan was, I wouldn't let him down, I wouldn't let her down, I wouldn't let me mum down. I'd, I'll, I'll step back up. And I did. You know, we never ever thought we were going to be there 20 years on. I remember the day, it was the 20th anniversary. I was sat in a particular area of the cop where a new mic used to stand. Members of the family just got up and said a few things, and then... Andy Burnham come up to give his speech. He was standing in for Gordon Brown, the then Prime Minister. I can't remember the exact words he was talking about at the time, but then all of a sudden he just heard this shout. Justice for the 96. Or just justice, I think. A section of the crowd started and then everyone joined in. Justice for the 96. And it was... There was that solidarity again it lifted your soul you, you know that you stood up proud and we were all chanting and holding hands i think andy Byrne was nodding his head and the affirmative he was going to do something about it and he gave his word and he stuck with it the momentum started then and the next thing obviously we were leading on to the dip and there was another hurdle the Hillsborough Independent Panel Report was a group of people set up to look at Hillsborough independently. They looked into this fresh evidence that was released early so they could decide if there was this new inquest going to come about. What they uncovered was unbelievable. The alternative of statements, the alternative of pocket notebooks. You know, all this was wrong and that evidence was never there in the previous inquests when we were working with the legal team, trying to promote ways that we could be supported. One of the best ones for me was the, the Human Rights Act, the, the right to life. Mike was denied that at Hillsborough. There's quite a famous picture of Mike. Michael is still alive at 1509. Michael was then taken onto the pitch, laid on his back, swallowed his tongue and choked to death. So Michael's right to life was lost because of incompetence of others. And it was that section of the Human Rights Act, a right to life, that helped us get these inquests in Warrington. Without that, we'd have been nowhere. So then the inquest started. I remember sitting with the father, Barry Devonside. We used to look at each other now and again, and we'd see a witness in the box, for example, of a policeman or an ambulanceman thinking, how can he be a public representative? And it's so obvious he messed up on the day, but will not to this day admit it. And he's being dragged across the coals with evidence that's obviously against him, but they're still defending their corner so well. Why not just give the people who have suffered some peace? Then you'd see survivors coming into court who'd been traumatised for 27 years, never spoken about Hillsborough. They put themselves through hell. They didn't know us. We tried to go up and thank them afterwards. It's all we had to give, a shake of the hand. And I gave my piece about Mike 
Just before I started to speak, I put my hand in my inside pocket and touched the photographs with the family. I just got a bit of strength from somewhere. On the 16th of April 1989, when I found Mike, I remember a, a policeman referring to him as body number 72. And that hurt me, that. He wasn't body number 72. He was my mother's son. Then he became mother of the 96. He wasn't, he was an individual. He was a proud individual as well. And I did go up there that day to reclaim him and to remove that sequence of numbers off him. I stopped and looked around and then, and everyone came up and started hugging me and kissing me and that. And then times when I felt I'd let Mike down and I'd let Joan down and my mum by walking away. It was quite a moment for me because I thought, well, I've given my best shot. I, I, you know, I was there at the, the last thing I could do for him. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very pleasing. When we got the, the verdict, his name was clear. He wasn't a hooligan. He was unlawfully killed. I said, right, we've proved it beyond doubt now. Let's take him home. And we did. I wouldn't have anyone with me. I wanted to be on my own. I went down to the cemetery, went to see my mum and I Joe and my dad. And I said, well, we done it. I said to my mum what I'd said to her all them years ago. We proved today, Mum, he wasn't a hooligan. And uh, I think that was probably the proudest moment of my life. I'd done something for my family, so any feelings of letting them down before, I think, had gone. You know, I, I took that news to, to his mother. Um, and uh, that was, you know, Michael Kelly individual uh, to his own mother, you know. That, that's, that meant everything. Hillsborough has been a, not for the families and survivors, but for, I think for the outside world, Hillsborough's been a, a twofold challenge, you know, give us truth and justice. And I think we've achieved that. We got the truth from the Hillsborough Independent Panel. And with that information, we got the justice. All the names were cleared. Of every Liverpool fan who went up there that day, the blame was laid fairly and squarely on the authorities. But the third element has yet to be achieved, which is accountability. There's got to be accountability. We're sort of campaigners. We've been created in a way. We didn't want to be like this. To live the life I've lived for the last 28 years, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. If we can get that third element of accountability, then the, these 28 years won't have been in vain. Then. And uh, that, that's my wish.
That was Steve Kelly. Steve and the Hillsborough families used our human rights law in the UK, the Human Rights Act, to get justice after decades of deceit. The Human Rights Act is currently under threat. Our government wants to get rid of it. You can support our campaign to save the Human Rights Act at amnesty.org.uk forward slash HRA. You've been listening to In Their Own Words. I'm Anna Bacciarelli. The series producer is Sam Lawler. Please subscribe to the series on iTunes or your podcast provider and do rate and review us.